I wonder for those of us who worship here every week, how often we notice that. Sometimes when we just come week after week, it just kind of blends into the, the scenery. Right? And when, when someone new comes, that's one of the first things they think about or, or notice. They say, I love the cross. And I'm like, oh yeah, there is a cross. And then their second question is, how is it up there? Is it like <laughs> levitating? I tell them it's the Holy Spirit that's actually levitating that up there. When we moved in, it was quite a discussion. When we moved into this building, there were, there were some people that wanted to take it down. And I didn't want to do that. I thought it was important that the cross remain the center of what we do. But they were worried that it was going to fall on my head. And I said, hey, if I am impaled to the stage by the cross while preaching the gospel, that is a good way to go. You guys will be in counseling for the rest of your life. But I'm okay with that. This cross wasn't actually ours. It was part of the Episcopal Church before us. And it stays, and it reminds us that the cross is the center of all we do, and it's not something that we think about very often, is it? We go through life day after day, and how often do we think about the cross, the horrors of the cross, what we just read, the way Jesus died, and the cross, perhaps the world's greatest recognized religious symbol. There are people that don't believe in the gospel, but yet will have a cross on a necklace around their necks. Or have a tattooed on their body. Or they'll have stickers of it somewhere. Or maybe it'll mark their grave. The cross cannot be minimized. The cross cannot be marginalized. The cross, like this, hanging above the center of all we do, must be the center of our lives. And so this week, we have come to the cross. And so Matthew 27, last week, we inched closer to this inevitable cross. We saw Jesus before Pilate sentenced as guilty, even though he was completely innocent. But yet guilt surrounded Jesus, didn't it? The Jewish religious leaders were guilty. The crowd shouting crucify him, they all were guilty. Pontius Pilate and his Roman soldiers were all guilty. Every person who ever lived, sorry, guilty. How to remove this guilt? We said there was only one way that the guilt can be removed, and that is through the cross of Jesus Christ. This week, we finally get to the actual cross, and there's much here for us this morning, and so let's look again, refresh our memory in Matthew 27. Look at verse 27. It says this, The soldiers of the governor took Jesus into the governor's headquarters. They gathered the whole battalion before him, and they stripped him, and they put a scarlet robe on him, and twisting together a crown of thorns, they put it on his head. They put a reed in his right hand. And kneeling before him, they mocked him, saying, Hail, King of the Jews! And they spit on him. And they took the reed, and they struck him on the head. And when they had mocked him, they stripped him of the robe and put his clothes on him and led him away to crucify him. And so now that Jesus has been officially sentenced to be crucified by the Romans, events get into motion very quickly. The soldiers take him into headquarters, otherwise known as the Praetorium, Praetorium rather, or whether that's another official residence. And soon, many hundreds of soldiers come in to do what armies have been doing for generations and still do, unfortunately, to this day. 
They have sport with their enemies. They mock them. They beat them. They torture them. This man claimed he was king of the Jews. Well, fine. He claims he's king of the Jews. Then he needs a kingly outfit, doesn't he? And so they dress him in that. They take him, they take the original clothes off of him, and they put on this, this uh, probably red sash that was really just a remnant from a Roman soldier's regular outfit, which is probably dirty and stained with blood and, and faded from the sun. It certainly doesn't look like what a king would wear. They twist together uh, a, a, some branches of thorns in a circle, and they pushed it on his head. When we were in Israel, there are these plants all over the place. You might be able to see this. It is just a little strand of thorns that looks like that, and you can't see the thorns, but they're very, very big. They're enormous thorns, and they're very sharp. And so imagine twisting all that together, maybe layer after layer, course after course, and then shoving it down on Jesus' head. No doubt would be more blood. They take a reed, and, and when you read that word reed, don't think of like a reed that's bent over in a marsh. It's a, it's a reed, more like a bamboo pole. They would use these things to actually make their walls and make their, their roofs of their houses. This was a very, very strong and thick, almost piece of bamboo. And they put that in his hand. And they dropped to their knees, and they mocked him, saying, Hail, King of the Jews! They slapped him. They laughed at him. They spit on him. They drove the thorns deeper into his scalp. They took the reed and they beat him with it. All this, don't forget, after he's been scourged, right? Massive blood loss, massive shock, and now this again. After this, of course, they take off his outfit. They put his own clothes back on him and they lead him away to crucify him. I don't know if you've ever been mocked and I'm not talking about banter between people. Uh, nobody's been mocked probably in this room by hundreds of people or beaten by hundreds of people knowing full well that those same people are about to kill you. None of us have ever been stripped naked, dressed in a costume with props and physically beaten and spit on. Jesus, completely and totally humiliated, on his way to the most humiliating death that ever was. So I'll say this, Jesus suffered humiliation before exaltation. Jesus suffered humiliation before exaltation. And as heavy as this week's passage is, we have to kind of keep just one eye on next week, right? One eye on the resurrection, right? The glory of that, the exaltation of that, but that is not going to happen unless the cross happens. The exaltation of the resurrection doesn't happen without the humiliation of the cross. And Jesus, of course, didn't stay in the grave. He was humiliated even unto death, but he will be exalted in his resurrection. Imagine the strength of Jesus at this moment, the self-control, knowing full well that you can turn a couple hundred Roman soldiers into a smoldering pile of dust with just a thought, but yet he doesn't. In fact, humiliation, church, is the very path to exaltation. The world has that backwards. The world says, exalt yourself. Humiliation is bad. But Christianity says, no, humiliation is actually the path to exaltation. Christianity, again, is a paradox. It's the way of Christianity. And once again, our friends, 
Puritan friends in the Valley of Vision sum it up very well for us. The prayer goes like this, let me learn by paradox that the way up, the way down rather, is the way up. To be low is to be high. That the broken heart is the healed heart. That the contrite spirit is the rejoicing spirit. That the repenting soul is the victorious soul. That to have nothing is to possess all. That to bear the cross is to wear the crown. That to give is to receive. And the valley is the place of vision. We know this because this is Jesus Himself who is doing this, of course, but he's also lived what he taught his disciples. A few pages before us in Matthew 23, verses 11 and 12, you might remember Jesus says, The greatest among you shall be your servant. Whoever exalts himself will be humbled. But watch this, whoever humbles himself will be exalted. Jesus was humbled before he was exalted. In 18.4, he said again, Whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. It didn't make sense that humility was the path to exaltation. And we see in 1 Peter chapter 5 verses 5 and 6 it says likewise you who are younger subject to be subject to the elders clothe yourselves all of you with humility towards one another for God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves therefore under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he might, what? Exalt you. Exaltation comes through humiliation. And Jesus is showing us that right here in this account. Of course, it's a pretty short walk to application here. Are we seeking to exalt ourselves? Or are we seeking to be humble? Did you catch that verse in 1 Peter? It's one of the scariest verses in the Bible. God opposes the proud. If you're proud, God opposes you. And one of, the, one of the authors who wrote a book on humility said, and it's not if we have pride, it's where is our pride. We all have pride. We all struggle with pride. And in that moment, God opposes us. He gives grace to the humble, but he opposes the proud. Think too, what does our culture value. They value humility. They value exaltation. It's in the air that we breathe. Take care of yourself. Do what you got to do. Take care of your needs. What would the average American think of the church and what they value? Would they think that they're supposed to value humiliation or the church should value exaltation? What would our own heretics in the prosperity gospel say? Exalt yourself. God's for you and your glory, and your goodness. Martin Luther talked of the theology of the cross versus the theology of the crown. We should be actively seeking the theology of the cross. A, should, a Christian should not be seeking their own glory and exaltation, but you should be seeking rather, we should be seeking rather, humility, like Christ did. That does not mean weakness. That's the misunderstanding. Humility does not mean weakness. Humility is meekness. Humility is power under control. This is God the Son here, yet restraining everything in order to fulfill the mission that the Father has given him and that he is willingly undergoing. It is the cross before the crown, and heaven awaits us, but we must persevere through this life first. Do we value those times when we are humbled? 
Do we realize that it's a time of growth? Do we realize the way up is the way down, that the valley is indeed the place of vision? We just think it's the valley, and we want to get out of it as fast as, fast as possible, right? Look around. It's the valley of vision. And Jesus, for his place of ultimate humility, of course, was the cross. Look at verse 32. That as they went out, they found a man of Cyrene, Simon by name. They compelled this man to carry his cross. And when they came to a place called Golgotha, which means place of the skull, they offered him wine to drink mixed with gall, or gall. And when he tasted it, he would not drink it. And when they had crucified him, they divided his garments among them by casting lots. And they sat down and kept watch over him there. And over his head... They put the charge against him, which read, This is Jesus, the King of the Jews. Now, the the Romans were experts in crucifixions. There were a few types of crosses. They were very creative in the way that they did this, and the only bounds to their creativity was just their horrific, sadistic nature. They crucified people in the shape of an X. They crucified people with a cross in the shape of just a T or maybe even just a pole in the ground or the familiar cross shape that we have come to know. They crucified people in the tens of thousands. Once during a rebellion, in order to put down the rebellion, they crucified so many thousands of people. They lined the road to Rome with crucified people. And they left them on the cross there to rot and to have a message that says, this is what will happen to you if you mess with Rome. They were experts at crucifixion. And according to tradition, Jesus was crucified on the familiar cross shape that we know. The point of crucifixion was not instant death. It was humiliation and a very slow, agonizing, and public death. D.A. Carson notes that crucifixion was an unspeakably painful and degrading experience. In Roman law, it was reserved only for the worst criminals in the lowest classes. No Roman citizen could be crucified without a direct edict from Caesar himself. Jesus, again, already suffering shock, blood loss from the scourging, was now forced to carry probably his near 40-pound, 50-pound crossbeam, just a crossbeam through the streets, the crucifixion site, the famous Via Della Rosa that you can walk when you go to Israel. Usually the condemned were stripped naked and usually they continued to flog and scourge them as they carried this cross beam to their site of crucifixion. They don't say that they did that, but I have a feeling that Jesus, having suffered so much blood loss and trauma, he probably had a lot of trouble carrying that cross as it was. Probably stopping, probably falling, probably trying to catch his breath. And now, picture this too. Lining the streets were all of who? All of the people. Mocking him, spitting at him, throwing garbage at him. And the Roman soldier said, we got to speed this up. This is not going to be good. If this guy takes this long, we're going to have a full-blown riot on our hands in the street. And so they, they, the text says compel, they just force Simon of Cyrene, which is in northern Africa, no doubt probably in town for the Passover feast, to carry this cross beam for him. Quick, grab that. Let's get out of here. We need to get this going. They arrive at the crucifixion site, the place called Golgotha, the skull, maybe because it resembled a skull, or more probably this is where the Romans crucified people, the skull, the place of death. And I do have two pictures, and I definitely forgot my laser pointer, but... 
up to the bottom left. If you see that little dotted line, that's where the temple is, to the bottom left, I'm sorry, top left is Golgotha. And, and I show you that to show you that there's one really important thing. That's outside the city. This place of crucifixion is outside the city. They left the city walls in order to crucify. There's one more picture that you'll probably never be able to see, but I threw it in anyway. The temple complex is on your top right, and all the other stuff is the city, and probably dead center in the, in the middle up top is, again, where they think Golgotha was. Again, I wanted you to see the important thing there, not so much the detail, but the point that it's outside the city. That ties in very, very importantly and critically with Jewish law. Because sin offerings were offered where? Outside the city gates. And so Rome themselves, in an attempt to just kind of send a message to those who would come through to the city, fulfilled yet another prophecy. That the sin offerings were crucified outside the gate of the city. They offer him wine mixed with gall. Mark says that it's myrrh. Uh, They offer this to him to drink. It's either one of two things. Either it's so bitter, it's completely disgusting, and Jesus would just refuse to drink it, and they would give it to him like you would give somebody something disgusting to drink just to mock them. Or it could be a powerful narcotic and a painkiller. And maybe out of mercy, they were giving to him to deaden some of the pain of what he's in, maybe keep the crucifixion going on a little longer for public display. Jesus refuses to drink it. I like to think it was the narcotic. I like to think that Jesus said, no, I'm going to feel every ounce of the Father's wrath for sin, and I'm going to pay it all. The text simply says they crucified him, and then they divided his clothes among them, throwing dice, almost like a normal day for the Roman crucifixion squad. To be crucified, you had your arms spread full out, your hands probably and your wrists were nailed to the crossbeam right through into the wood. Your feet were nailed to the main pole that was then hoisted up probably several feet off the ground. And there you hung. And, and think about that. You're hanging by the weight in your, the, the nails in your wrists supported by your feet. And so after a while, right, you just get exhausted and you you start to droop down. And the problem with that is that everything in here then gets constricted and then you can't breathe. And so the only way that you can take a breath is for you to pull yourself up by those nails, your hands that are nailed to the wood and and consequently pushing up on your feet where they are also nailed into the wood. Which think about the agonizing pain that that would be just to take one breath. After a while, the pain in your back, the pain in your feet, the pain in your arms, the sheer exhaustion and shock, you go in and out of consciousness. After a while, you just give up. After a while, you say, I can't can't lift myself up one more time to do this. And you suffocate. That's how you mostly died. You, you, you suffocate because you can't lift yourself up one more time to get air in your lungs. It's unimaginable agony. After hours or sometimes days, you just didn't have the strength to pull yourself up anymore. It was slow. It was painful. It was public. It was horrific. And while Jesus was hanging on the cross, going through all of this, the soldiers were below him, sitting 
resting, throwing dice is to see who gets his meager clothing and just keeping watch to make sure that nobody messed with this situation. Over his head sung, or hung the, the charge of guilt like it did for all condemned, crucified prisoners and said, this is Jesus, King of the Jews. It was written in Greek, it was written in Hebrew, it was written in Latin. Why was Jesus sentenced to die? Rome tells us straight up, he claimed to be king. So if anybody ever wants to know, did Jesus really claim to be God? Well, there's something in Roman history that actually exists that says, yes, he did. He claimed to be God, king of the Jews. They said that as a mockery, of course, to the Jewish people. The Jewish people would, would refuse to believe that Jesus was king of the Jews. It was blasphemy to them. And of course, to the Romans, it was just one more day. Someone else claimed to be the Messiah, or someone else claimed to usurp power, or someone else did. That's what he said, and so that's what we put as the charge. As you can imagine, it wasn't just Jesus who was there when the Roman crucifixion squad were there. There were many others. Look at verse 38. And two robbers were crucified with him, one on the right and one on the left, and those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads and saying, you who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself. If you are the Son of God, come down from the cross. So also the chief priests with the scribes and the elders, they show up mocking him, saying, he saved others, he can't save himself. He's the king of Israel, right? Let him come down now from the cross and we'll believe in him. He trusts in God. Let God deliver him now if he desires. For he said, I'm the Son of God. And the robbers who were crucified with him also reviled him the same way. And so on either side of Jesus are crucified two robbers. The text calls them robbers. Imagine that, capital punishment for stealing. A crowd gathers, remember, outside the gate. People are walking by. People are going into the city. People are coming out of the city. And of course, those who knew what was going on followed the whole procession probably to the crucifixion site to see this. People walking by, shaking their heads, throwing insults at him, saying, this guy, this was the guy that said he was going to destroy the temple, right? Yeah, doesn't look like he was able to do any of that. You can't do that now. Save yourself, Mr. Messiah. Of course, the chief priests and the elders come by to gloat. They join in with the others. Oh, yeah, this was the guy who said he would save others, but how can he save others? He can't save himself. He's there dying on the cross like a common criminal. Hey, hey, king, how about you come down from that cross, Mr. Messiah? Then, then we'll believe you. All those things you said, then we'll believe you. Or, or maybe how about your father, the one you were always talking about? Maybe he can save you if he wants to. Even the robbers who were crucified next to him join in and mock him, although we know they're from other gospel accounts that one actually came to faith. Eventually came to faith. In the end, death inevitably comes. Look at verse 45. Now from the sixth hour there was darkness over all the land until the ninth hour. And about the ninth hour Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, lema sabachthini. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of the bystanders hearing him say it said, this man is calling Elijah. And one of them at once ran over, took a sponge, filled it with sour wine and put it on a reed and gave it to him to drink. And while the other said, wait, let us see whether Elijah will come to save him. 
And Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. From the sixth hour, which is noon, until the ninth hour, which is 3 p.m., there's darkness. Supernatural darkness. Most of the time when the Bible talks about darkness, it talks about judgment. This is the judgment of God for sin that has now fallen over his son. The ninth hour, Jesus cries out in Hebrew and Aramaic. Hebrew meaning Eli, Eli, uh, short for Elohim, God. Why have you forsaken me? Notice Jesus is not calling on his father. He's calling on his God. Out of humanity, we see the pure humanity of Jesus in that moment, knowing that God has turned his back on him or thinking that he has forsaken him. Why have you left me? When are you going to save me? Are you even still there? The bystanders think he's calling on Elijah from the way that Elijah was swept up into heaven and maybe Elijah is going to come and rescue him. That's not what's happening. One of them, perhaps in a mission of mercy, goes to get a sponge and fill it with wine. They put it in a reed. They give it to him to drink. The sour wine was the cheap wine, the drink of the soldiers and the common people. It was a thirst quencher. Anyone who sat next to anyone near death knows they're almost always thirsty. Jesus cries out with a loud voice, probably saying, it is finished at this point, and giving up his spirit. Notice how the text says that. It says that. He gave up his spirit. He decides. He gives his own life up willingly. No one takes it from him. But giving his life willingly means being separated from God the Father, separated because he who knew no sin became sin for us to reconcile us. And so I'll say it this way. Jesus suffered separation before reconciliation. Jesus suffered separation before reconciliation. The darkness... Judgment for sin, the purpose of the cross is happening right here before everyone's eyes. Separation because sin is completely incompatible with God and his character and his nature. It is opposite. Then Jesus becomes sin for us and therefore the Father must turn his face away from sin. Jesus suffering temporary separation. This isn't a broken trinity. Temporary separation from the Father as he pays the price for our sin. As Piero prayed, it doesn't make sense. It wasn't Jesus' sin, it was our sin. Spurgeon wrote, There was no reason for the Father to forsake him, so we must look elsewhere. And here it is, Christ bore the sinner's sin. And thus he had to be treated as though he were a sinner, though a sinner he could never be. By crying, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Most commentators believe He is talking about Psalm 22, which we read earlier. If we look briefly at Psalm 22, we see the first line of Psalm 22 is what Jesus said, David crying out to God in his moment of despair, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me from the words of my groaning? And it goes on and on, but at the end, in verse 27, look what happens, reconciliation. All of the ends of earth shall, of the ends of the earth shall remember and turn to the Lord, and the families of the nations shall worship before you. The psalm ends with the conversion of the Gentiles. 
in the coming kingdom of God. And one commentator notes that Jesus' words make crystal clear that though he appears to be forsaken in his suffering and death, in the end, God will hear him and deliver him. And so by quoting this, often in Jewish literature, when you quoted one psalm and you quoted a part of the first, that psalm, you quoted the whole psalm. You knew what we, people, people knew what you were talking about. If you quoted Psalm 21, 1, they knew it started with being forsaken, but it ended with being reconciled. Likewise, church, we are born sinful and separated from God. And only by crying out to God for salvation can we be reconciled. This is the whole reason Jesus went to the cross, to satisfy the just wrath of God for sin, so that we can be forgiven and restored with our Creator. Jesus' suffering separation from God the Father on the cross literally goes before us. He experiences our separation from God so that through faith in what He did, we can be reconciled to God. <clears throat> Those who attended our, our midweek series, The Giants of the Faith, way back when, you might remember a poet named William Cooper who suffered crippling suicidal dep depression. One author notes that Jesus cried, My God, I am forsaken, so that for all eternity... William Cooper would not have to. In other words, Jesus cried out, My God, my God, I am forsaken so that Mike Rule or John Lisa or Steve Barlow or Ron Vreeland or anyone in this room doesn't have to. Jesus went for us to be forsaken so that we can be reconciled. It's another major paradox of our faith again. Separation comes before reconciliation. In order to be reconciled, you have to be separated. This is nothing short of the cosmic reconciliation of God with the human race. And in order to reconcile, Jesus needed to experience separation first. This is no ordinary event. This is no ordinary crucifixion. <clears throat> and the events that immediately follow demonstrate that beyond a shadow of a doubt. Back in Matthew 27, We see the aftermath. Look at verse 51. And behold, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And the earth shook, and the rocks were split, and the tombs were also opened. And many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised. And coming out of the tombs after his resurrection, they went into the holy city and appeared to many. And when the centurion and those who were with him Keeping watch over Jesus, saw the earthquake and what took place, they were filled with awe and said, truly, this is the Son of God. There were also many women there looking on from a distance who had followed Jesus from Galilee, ministering to him, among whom were Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of James and Joseph and the mother of the sons of Zebedee. So the curtain of the temple, torn in two from top to bottom, most likely this is the curtain that separated the holy place from the most holy place where the presence of God was. <clears throat> this is not like a curtain that we have in our homes. One commentator said the curtain between the holy place and the most holy place was an elaborately woven fabric of 72 twisted braids of 24 threads each. It was 60 feet high and 30 feet wide. 
no one was allowed to enter the most holy place beyond the curtain except the high priest. And he only once a year on the Day of Atonement. So we put these pieces together. The first thing that happens is the separation between God and man is removed. We have access to God. The curtain torn in two symbolizes that we don't need a priest. We don't need a temple. We don't need sacrifices. We don't need the old law to do that. We have direct access to God through faith in Jesus Christ. There are many other signs that Matthew notes. A massive earthquake. Rocks are literally broken apart. The creation reacts to the temporary death of his creator. Creation reacting to the death of its creator. It was an event that, that only Matthew records. The earthquakes have opened the tombs, right? They're not graves, they're tombs in the rock. They've opened the tombs. And dead saints, meaning dead Christians, walk out. Disciples of Jesus. Their tombs open in the earthquake and they're resurrected from death to life and they walk out alive. Jesus, this always is like, really? And this is a favorite of atheists, this target right here. It's like, come on, really? Jesus resurrected people before here. So what is so hard to understand about this? We don't know much about this. History doesn't record it. We got nothing from Josephus, other accounts. We have nothing, but it happened. And why is that so hard to believe? We don't know if these people were resurrected with their glorified bodies and then ascended to heaven when Jesus ascended, or if they were like Lazarus, who was resurrected from the dead and then unfortunately had to go through that twice. Bummer. We don't know, but Matthew includes it. But think about the symbolism of that, that the death of Jesus means other people live. That's what we experience today. The reality, again, is clear. The centurion says, and those around him say, truly, this was the Son of God. Jesus' female disciples, like Peter, that fateful day of denial, was they were following from a distance, ministering to him when they could. And they see the burial coming. Look at verse 57. When it was evening, there came a rich man from Arimathea named Joseph, who also was a disciple of Jesus, he went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Then Pilate ordered it to be given to him. And Joseph took the body and wrapped it in a clean linen shroud and laid it on his, in his new tomb, when he had, the one he had cut in the rock. And he rolled a great stone to the entrance of the tomb, and he went away. Mary Magdalene and the other Mary were there, sitting opposite the tomb. So we have another character on the scene, Joseph from Arimathea. Says he's, a, says he's a rich man. He's a disciple of Jesus. We know from other accounts that Joseph was also a member of the Sanhedrin. I don't know if he was there that night or not, that they condemned him to die. I like to think he wasn't. And as soon as he figured out what was happening, he sprung into action. Think about the, the courage that it took this man to go to Pilate and ask for the body of Jesus. Already established Pilate's crazy. 
But Pilate also has to codify the Jews and make sure that they are um, happy. And I bet Pilate gave him the body because he continued to want to give the Jews something as a peace offering. I also think, as we know from last week, that Pilate knew Jesus was innocent. So he says, yes, get this man off the cross and bury him fine. Be done with this. Says he's a disciple. We don't know when he became a disciple. He may or may not have been there again the night that he was condemned. But he wants the body of Jesus and he wants to put it in his own tomb cut in the rock. So burial for Jewish people was extremely important. It was a curse to be left unburied. And Joseph would not let this happen. He gets the body of Jesus, which Again, Pilate may have given him out of guilt for crucifying an innocent man. He wraps Jesus in a linen burial cloth, has him put into the tomb and rolled a great stone against the door and went away. Now we'll see next week. This was done very quickly because it was the eve of the Sabbath and the Sabbath started at sundown. And so they're already, they're already up against the clock. So Joseph, usually the burial process took a lot longer. And so Joseph does it quickly to be ready for the Sabbath. Most commentators think he had his people do that so he didn't touch any dead bodies or anything and then be unclean for the Sabbath. Mary Magdalene and the other Mary were there sitting opposite the tomb. It's done. Jesus is buried. All this evil, seemingly victorious, but yet it is not evil gone out of control. It is the plan of God. And we look again at the paradoxes of this plan. We can be exalted through Jesus' humiliation. We can be reconciled to God through Jesus' separation. If you were going to create the redemptive plan of God, this would not be it, would it? I had that conversation with a Jehovah's Witness yesterday who decided to come in my driveway when I was doing yard work. <laughs> I would sell that to Mel. And he asked me one question, and then he says, you seem to know a little about the Bible. I said, yeah, I, I, uh, I pastor Highlands Bible Church. He goes, oh, we've heard about you. <laughs> the other guys down the street, they told us, we didn't know where you lived, but we knew you were on this street. I'm like, hi, nice to meet you. <laughs> there I am. I said to him, the main problem is that Jesus has to be God because there's no man alive that can pay for my sin. He has to be God or this whole thing falls apart. He couldn't have done it any other way. He had to be God. He had to be humbled before he was exalted. He had to be separated before he was reconciled. We see the paradoxes of all of this. And in this church, we learn how to live. And so I'll say it this way. The way Jesus died is the way we should live. The way Jesus died is the way we should live. The notion of a crucified Savior is ridiculous to a modern world. You will hear that even today, that God killed his son, divine child abuse. In Rome, they've discovered graffiti from about the first century, and I have a picture of it here, of this actual graffiti from Rome where you can see writing at the bottom that says this man, I think his name was Alexipos or something like that, was worshiping his God. That's what that says. And if you can make that out, that's a cross. 
and it's a person, but the person had the head of a donkey. He says, this is your God. That's your God? That's Jesus? It's ridiculous. You're worshiping something as foolish as a donkey. Still, many today think the cross is foolishness, but for us, church, it's actually the way that we live, the way for us to love, live, rather. The way Jesus died is the way we should live. And I mean this in two ways as we land the plane for our application. First, we as Christians, we need to live the paradox. It's the way we should live now. The way to our exaltation is through our humility. We struggle through this life under the weight and the drag of sin, of sickness, and evil in our society. But for the faithful, exaltation awaits. It is not for nothing. We don't seek our own glory, but rather in humility, we seek God's glory as we seek to live the mission he's given us to glorify God in growing more mature, more like him. But the second way that Jesus died and the way that we should live then in church is in order to live, we have to have the first part of that, life. We have to have new life. We need to understand that reconciliation is only possible because we are, in fact, separated from God. In the first place, by our sin, Jesus died suffering the temporary separation from the Father in order for us to have a way to live in the first place, to be reconciled to him. This is through faith and faith alone. The way Jesus died is the only way that we can live. And Martin Luther, again, the theology of the cross has to be at the center of who we are as individual Christians, but also as a church. We need to be able to say with the Apostle Paul, I am resolved to know nothing but Christ and Him crucified. And so church, we reflect on this and we ask, is our life centered on the cross? Is our life actually centered on the cross and Jesus? And do we seek our own exaltation or like Christ, do we know that exaltation comes through humiliation? Do we seek reconciliation with God? There would be no need for reconciliation if there wasn't a separation in the first place, if we weren't sinners. And God has provided that way for us to be reconciled through Christ who experienced that temporary separation. And this cross hangs above our head as a reminder must remind, remain not just this reminder, not just symbolically centered. It must be centered in our lives, in our hearts, and in our church. Because the way that Jesus died is the way that we should live. Father, we thank you for the cross. It's, again, seemingly so shallow to say that. The reality of what Jesus has done for us on the cross is something that we would not be able to live without it. We're dead in our sins. We are separated from you. And Jesus became like us in sin, although not sinning. Temporarily separated from God so that we might be reconciled. And Father, pray that we would walk in that. Pray that we would walk in humility. We wouldn't seek our own exaltation, but we would seek to exalt the cross, which our world laughs at still and considers it foolishness. But may we, like the Apostle Paul, 
Say we resolve to know nothing but Christ and him crucified. Would we truly live a cross-centered life? We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.